welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films of Jane Campion. I'm Ingo King, a critic at the Washington Post, and with me is my co-host Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate, also known as the Demon Twink. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm definitely not a twink. Um, hi, Ingo. <laughs> Happy to be here. You definitely are a demon. <laughs> On this episode, we are going to discuss the power of the dog, and we will be getting into the many, many spoilers. We'll be spoiling it very, very early in the episode, so abort now. Yeah. This is definitely a movie you want to watch as cold as possible, so uh, if you haven't seen it, get out while you can. So Daniel, it's been six episodes of our podcast, uh, but more importantly, 12 entire years since Campion's last film, Bright Star. The Power of the Dog has largely been considered her comeback vehicle, uh, garnering her the Silver Lion for Best Direction at the Venice Film Festival. It's certainly in the running this award season for probably Best Picture, definitely Direction, Cinematography, and Score as well as for stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. Adapted from the 1967 novel by Michael Savage, The Power of the Dog is also notable for how it differs from Campion's previous work. In her 30 years as a filmmaker, it's her first feature with a male lead, Phil, played by Cumberbatch, who, by the way, was forced into some crazy training for the film. On Campion's insistence, he not only learned how to ride a horse and make ropes, but also learned how to castrate bulls. It is a film that is also deliciously difficult to categorize. It is a cowboy story with no guns. Um, It's not exactly a Western, although I think I'm seeing that descriptor all over the place. In its first half, it is a period drama set among the rural Montana ranching aristocracy in the 1920s, although because it's Campion, it's shot in New Zealand. And in its second half, kind of like in the cut, uh, you're not really sure whether you are watching a romance or a thriller, and I really loved that. Uh, there are probably lots of movies you thought of while watching this one, uh, Brokeback Mountain, obviously, for its superficial similarities, but also for me, ultimately, the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, shall we dive in? All right, so the film opens on brothers Phil and George Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons, driving their cattle in Montana. They stop off at an inn where they encounter owner Rose Gordon, played by Kirsten Dunst, and her peculiar son Peter, played by Cody Smith McPhee, who Phil mocks at dinner in front of his whole cowboy crew. George falls in love with Rose and they get married. Peter goes off to school to study medicine, and Rose moves into the house with George and Phil. Tensions rise between Rose and Phil as Phil tries to make Rose miserable at every turn. After a humiliating evening with the governor and Phil and George's parents, Rose starts drinking to cope and is a complete alcoholic by the time Peter comes home for the summer. Phil and his crew continue to make fun of Peter, and he mostly stays inside studying and dissecting animals. One day, Phil is in his secret spot masturbating to a handkerchief of Bronco Henry, a man who taught him everything he knew about being a cowboy, and clearly a few other things, too. (laughs) Peter comes upon him and his stash of gay pornography, and Phil chases him off. 
After that, Phil's demeanor changes toward Peter, taking him under his wing. He teaches Peter to ride a horse and starts making a lasso especially for him. Peter goes out on his own one day to find a dead cow, which he begins to dissect. Peter and Phil seemingly grow closer and go out on a day job together where Phil injures his hand. When they return, they find a drunk Rose has sold all of Phil's cowhides to some local Native Americans passing through because she was told he would just burn them anyway, and Phil loses it because he no longer has enough cowhide to finish the lasso for Peter. Peter offers the cowhide from the dead cow he dissected, and he and Phil spend the evening in the barn together as Phil finishes the lasso and tells him a story of the time he and Bronco Henry had to huddle together for warmth and doesn't answer when Peter asks if they were nude. The next morning, Phil is taken ill, and within the day, he dies, having contracted anthrax from the tainted cowhide Peter provided. The family has a funeral, which Peter does not attend. He sits on his bed reading from Psalm 22, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Puts the lasso under his bed and watches as his mother and George embrace. I love when a homo kills another homo in order to make way for hetero love. That's praxis. (laughs) I'm an ally. Um, This movie, what'd you think? Uh, what a movie. I adored it. I loved it. I had no idea what it was about going in, and I couldn't be happier that that was the case. I kept like asking myself questions the whole way through and still don't know how I feel fully about all of it, but I'm excited to get into uh, the discussion and can't wait to see it again. Uh, pop quiz for you. At what point did you suspect that Phil is gay or queer? Good question. I know the actual answer to this. I'm just trying to think. Oh, uh, the moment he started acting very upset that George was falling for Rose. Why? Because he was acting like a petulant child that he was no longer going to have the intimacy of his relationship with his brother, which was a stand in for the actual monogamous male relationship that he really wanted to have. Hmm. What about you? I think that there was like a couple of hints like pretty early on, right? There's like a scene where the brothers sleep in the same bed and one of them is like under the covers and the other one is over the covers because no homo. Um, but I think that uh, there is a scene where Rose and George are sleeping with each other for the very first time after their wedding and uh, Phil hears their sex sounds and basically goes down to the barn mm. and basically starts like leathering or i don't know what you call it like polishing the leather of like bronco henry his former lover's um saddle saddle and he oh that was like a big like flashing neon sign of like (laughs) phil is gay phil is gay phil is gay if you didn't get it by that point i don't know what to tell you (laughs) truly you do not know how to watch a movie um actually the real first time that we're kind of uh, given to think that maybe he's gay is when he is playing with the paper flower that Peter has made, fingering mm-hmm. its rosebud. <laughs> it's paper rosebud. Yes. But yeah, I think it's, um, we got a lot of hints and I think that... It's telegraphed really early on, I think. Yes. Uh, I think it's one of the few times where Jane Campion does a foreshadowing and it isn't completely obvious. Wait, Jake Campion likes foreshadowing? <laughs> um, other, one more pop quiz for you. 
Um, did you like Jesse Plemons' mustache? Yeah. Okay. I guess I, didn't I know really you're think a mustache guy. I guess I didn't really think about it in a, like a negative way. So yeah, I liked it. Mustaches are great. It sounds like you hated it then. No, I just thought it was okay. Uh, one thing I, this is like completely like out of left field, but I do have to very quickly note that there are a bunch of smaller roles for actresses that I really, really enjoyed. One of them was seeing, um, of Genevieve course, Lemon. Genevieve Lemon, who stars in Sweetie and has spit roles in a lot of other campion films that we've talked about. It was also really wonderful to watch Thomasin McKenzie, who is a New Zealand actress on The Up and Up, and I loved her so much in Leave No Trace, and I was so relieved to get to see her without having to watch Last Night in Soho, or whatever that movie is, movie is called. Finally, it was such a weird treat seeing Frances Conroy, and it just reminded me that, like, the Joker was basically American horror story for straight people, um, <laughs> for straight men specifically. And so uh, thank God she got that paycheck and got the hell out of there. Good for you, Francis. Yes, free her from Ryan Murphy's grasp. What did you think? What did I think about this movie? Yes. I really liked it. I think that from like a craft angle, from the way... I, 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 we've been talking so much about like how so many of her movies are really personal and like really autobiographical and how she really puts a lot of herself in the movie. Um, I think I had just listened to our An Angel at My Table episode, uh, right before watching the movie, right before watching this movie. And I was remembering all of the parts about how, uh, Jane Campion sort of like reshaped um, Jana Frame's story so that it had more parallels with her own life and her own family history. And this is a movie where it just sounds like she went like along with a book and she uh, did what the book was about and basically uh, came up with like a story that like obviously spoke to her, but also wasn't autobiographical in the same way that like a lot of her earlier work was. And it was just, like, really great to see this, like, master technician, like, do really well at, like, the thing that she wanted to do. And also, like, of course, you get so many of these, like, Cambian-esque touches, like, these, like, beautiful, natural scenes. And just these, like, not quite camp, but, like, these, like, really, like, I don't know, these, like, really, like, ethereal images. Like, for example, Peter outside of, like, his house in the evening time, like, hula hooping um, against, like, (laughs) the backdrop of this, like, giant uh, mountain. Um, And just, like, a lot of those uh, dissection scenes, even, there was this, like, really, there was this, like, beauty to them. Um, I just really, yeah, it was so nice being back in a Jane Campion world. And such a beautiful Jane Campion world it was. I even if this movie had been mediocre, it would be very good just for the like scenic landscape shots that we get, because it's just like stunning and also surprisingly looking like the American West. I think she did a great job of like finding the way to make New Zealand landscape look like the American West. 
Yeah, and I think speaking of Jane Campion tropes, it was also really funny to watch her um, do sort of these like funny little uh, callbacks, uh, but also these like subversions to her own work with like the surprise piano, which is of course like (gasps) such a reversal of like what actually happens in the piano. And get that piano out of there. Kirsten Dunst (laughs) wants to throw it in the ocean. And just, like, this image of, like, a woman who feels so unworthy of having this, like, really grand piano and who feels completely alienated. And, of course, it becomes this, like, object of humiliation for her. I have to say I really, really felt for Rose among, like, the many other, like, the tritus in my head that I had uh, watching this. I (laughs) thought a lot about K-dramas because so much of, like, what I... Probably in like a very like outdated way at this point, think about K dramas as sort of about like these locking of horns between daughters in law and mothers in law, especially once the daughter in law like has to move into a space that the mother in law occupies. And I think that's like the much more traditional story. And this was about like a woman, a new bride who has to deal with like her really difficult brother in law and how that probably had some sort of historical resonance, especially with Thomas Savage, the author of the novel, basing a lot of the story on his own childhood and his own alcoholic mother. And how basic, I just like really felt for her plight, this um, probably like working class woman who was really used to being independent and who really enjoyed having her own space is giving, is basically given this uh, what is, like, construed by everybody else in the society, and probably including herself, to be this, like, gift of economic ascension and being told, like, you are, like, now, like, an upper-class woman. Or, yeah. And then she feels so completely, like, out of her depth and doesn't really want to do any of the wifely things and falls into alcoholism after... I believe, like, her husband, like, was also an alcoholic and sort of, like, died partly like because like his drinking led to a suicide right and yeah she yes. has that moment early in the movie where she says i really hate alcohol or whatever so anyway i really felt for her yeah i think that the first half of the movie is definitely a study of her yes in a way that like you don't even realize that the second half of the movie is coming i had no idea where the movie was going because like we were so focused on kirsten dunst in a way that like the stuff about uh, Phil was just bubbling under the surface and it was more like we're paying attention to him because of her. And then the focus shifts to him Uh, after I like after her son comes back from like medical school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Going back to one of those ethereal uh, scenes that I was talking about earlier, uh, another one I really loved was that Rose and George don't actually have like a honeymoon, but they basically go on this like very long car ride to get herself to move into his ranch home. They stop in the middle of the road where there's like absolutely nobody to have like a, like a tea. A cup of um, tea. Yeah. Um, and then they just sort of like stand around in the middle of nowhere with her giving him dance lessons just like waltzing lessons oh that would make sense 
Yeah, and basically he like turns away from her at one point, and then like a single tear rolls down his cheek, and he's basically crying because he doesn't have to be alone anymore. And the fact that like he shares a literal bed with his brother, but also felt so alone that like he's crying from happiness from having married, just like tells you everything you need to know about that particular uh, brotherhood. Um, I think one thing I actually noticed was because we are seeing so many of these movies after so many years after they have come out, I have never spent a great deal of time thinking about like the personal lives or like the larger screen personae of the actors that we've been watching. I think this also goes for our Almodovar season where, you know, like, other than maybe his marriage to Melanie Griffith, I don't really know anything about Antonio Banderas. And I don't really know anything about Holly Hunter. And so I didn't have like all of the baggage of like their star up apparatuses while watching basically every other like movie that we've discussed. Um, but it was like, a little annoying for me because I kept thinking like, oh, this is like a very like Benedict Cumberbatch role. And like obviously it oh, turned really? out like ha ha ha. No, I I'm serious. This is the first time that like I really actually liked Benedict Cumberbatch in a way that was like I like him as an actor as opposed to him like playing that version of himself, I feel like. <laughs> Have you seen um I've only seen him as Sherlock and Doctor Strange. Yeah, like, he's just, like, a jerk dude. And, like, of course, it's, like, a different, like, level of jerk dude. This is the first time I found Benedict Cumberbatch hot. Was it the scarf? It wasn't not the scarf. (laughs) It was also the flash of his dick. Jane Campion loves flashing a dick. She does love uh, flashing a dick. And also, I totally miss it because I dropped my pen at a certain point, which, like, if that was, like, in a cinematic scene, that would look very symbolic. But I dropped my pen, and as I went to go pick it up, and as I was, like, coming back up into my seat, the uh, camera had, like, just panned away from... Yeah, anyway, I miss it. It's, It's fine. I will live... It'll be on Netflix. It'll be on Netflix, so you can screenshot it soon enough. <laughs> uh, apparently, that whole scene where he shoves the scarf like into his pants was his idea. It was really hot. It was really hot. Um, but I just like that he was the one like pushing for that scene, and Campion sort of like apparently went along with it. Well, talking, uh, listening to. Jane Campion talk uh I was at a screening where she did a Q&A afterward and one of the things she did talk about was like how much of a collaborative process this film was in a way with the actors um and that that's kind of how she approaches directing in some way but also I was reading in the Hollywood Reporter's profile of Cumberbatch that she asked him to be in character for the entire movie like shoot even like when they weren't shooting and so like I think it in some ways makes sense that he would come up with this scene because he had lived in the character so intensely. Um, it's a weird thing to ask an actor. Method acting is dumb, but... Well, it's actually funny you bring that up because not only did he do that for however long he did that, apparently he also got nicotine poisoning like twice. three different... Two, twice. Uh, Campion apparently also asked Kirsten Dunst to clean her apartment regularly. Look like a mop. Campions? Yes. Apart- Wait, what? 
Like in the same way that like her character would have cleaned her saloon or tavern or whatever. Um, <laughs> Jane Campion's have, wild. Dunst said, Jane's pretty untidy, so it was hard work. Basically, she wanted to see if I could properly make the bed, set the table, and wipe the floor with the kind of old-fashioned mop and bucket that Rose would have used. That's hilarious. Honestly, <laughs> love Jane for that. Uh, I mean, would you rather do that or would you learn how to castrate a bull? Honestly, when you said that earlier in the episode, I had fully forgotten that scene because it was so, like, viscerally unnerving. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, that, like, it brought back memories in a way I did not want and is the one scene what I memories? could have done with that. Well, no, just, like, seeing it. Like, yeah. it brought back, like, the memory of seeing it and I was like, oh, God, I had, like, blocked that out because it. I hated it. I did not like. I mean, I get the, I get it, but also like, really. Cumberbatch also learned how to play the banjo, so it wasn't all castration all the time. Do 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 do. <laughs> not the song. No. Though I'm sure that Bronco Henry did make him squeal like a pig. <laughs> wow. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, what did you think? Did you have any thoughts on? So, like, one of the like really boring ways uh, people are talking about this film to me is like through the lens of toxic masculinity, because I think that phrase has sort of just like now become this kind of like buzzword for how people talk about gender relations, and it's like obviously there, but all I also just feel like it's like not specific enough for what we are seeing with phil let's talk about phil like yeah well because i think that phil's a lot more complicated than just like a portrait of toxic masculinity what he is is a portrait of a man who is playing the character of an alpha male heterosexual so aggressively because of his hidden desires that he can't actually express and the expectations that society seems to have for him. And so he has kind of molded himself into that and doesn't let people in because of that. Yes. Um, I think one thing I found really interesting and like a little confusing initially was why Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons had such different accents when they were playing brothers. And mm. they had spent the last 25 years of their lives together. And why Jesse Plemons sounds like Jesse Plemons, like a man uh, living in the year 2021. And why Benedict Cumberbatch does not. And then you realize after you learn that he has like a classics degree from Yale, that is probably like a massive put on. And he is just like... I don't know, like playing like rough trade because it's part of the macho performance. Yeah. That's how he wants to be uh, perceived. And I think it's very Tom of Finland. Yes. I love their deodorant. (laughs) (laughs) It's very musky. Uh, yeah, I think so much of the, like that particular dynamic is just about like this. Um, also, like 
in addition to like his internalized um homophobia just like this like misogynistic kind of internalized homophobia right like he doesn't like women um like i think at all I don't think that's just about Kirsten Dunst, or it's not just about Rose. And of course, he doesn't like effeminate men. Probably because, I mean, either because, like, he is so scared that he would be seen as one if he were more himself, or because he, like, genuinely, like, looks down upon them. And I have to say, like, it's really amazing how much um Bronco Henry feels like a real person. And first of all, like, Bronco Henry probably isn't even his name, right? Like, that's, like, a gay porn name. And yet, like, whatever he was or whoever he was, it's really wonderful. His name was probably, like, literally Richard Henry. Um, It's amazing, like, how much just, like, through, like, I don't know, like, five lines and Cumberbatch, like, looking at that saddle even, like, how much you can, like, feel his presence throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and that like the scarf that uh or the handkerchief that Cumberbatch is masturbating to just has the letters BH on it. But by that point we are like so aware of how important Bronco Henry is as a character in this that like it's automatic that we know what's going on. And I think that as you're saying about like his hatred of uh women and effeminate men is yeah, definitely a mixture of being afraid that he'll be found out by them perceived like they will maybe see a crack in his armor um, and hating what he sees in himself in them. Or also that like hating that, like that version of like that femininity is the thing to be scared of. Yeah. Um, Even the guys in the porn magazine that we see are just these like impossibly burly men. It's basically like Marvel actors, like of the 1920s. Just like, <laughs> like incredibly built. Um, I think it's almost like a muscle magazine or something. Oh yeah, like that. It, it is. It's that, and I, well, that's because like that's how those types of things were kind of sold in a way as like a kind of not so a discreet, fitness but magazine. discreet. Exactly, fitness magazines. I'm very aware of those from my teenage years. Um, and bonus notes: <laughs> We'll have Daniel's PDFs of those magazines. Oh, murder me. Um, <laughs> But I think it's that chink in his armor that Peter perceives that is what leads to Phil's downfall, even though he never sees it coming. Let's get back to that. But like, I think another thing I really loved is another parallel with like a lot of our other movies that I really loved is we've talked so much about like these hidden spaces of women. And it was really wonderful to see uh, Phil basically have, like, his own, like, private space and sort of, like, go through this, like, tunnel full of, like, roots that definitely reminded me of, like, the tree roots and the piano. And then, like, once he goes through there, he's, you know, like, to everyone's great surprise, like, a really, like, he's a sensualist, you know? Like, you see him wearing those, like, ridiculous uh, furry pants throughout most of the movie. And I think one of the really great things about Cumberbatch's performance is how stiff he is, like, throughout the movie. Like, his walking is stiff, his gait is stiff. 
he just looks like he's permanently in pain because he's constantly riding those horses and all of this uh, difficult labor has just like leathered him out or something. He looks like a jerky version of a man. And yet once he is able to go into that uh, secret location, like he is literally feeling himself. Right. Well, and his, like, it makes it even more apparent how much of that uh, static, um, like, rigidity is a performance. Yeah. Um, but speaking of the piano, I, I also want to say that, like, what I was, the the first, like, piano uh echoes that I felt here was actually the relationship between like the triangle of Jesse Plemons, Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst mirroring um, Anna Paquin, Holly Hunter and Sam Neill. It's actually funny that you say that because I actually also thought about that particular relationship. Where Benedict Cumberbatch is Anna Paquin. No, I thought of Peter as Anna Paquin, you know, he's a child and he suddenly is sort of like torn between his mother figure, who is his literal mother, and then also this like potential father figure. Not because, like, I think this is like before like their proto romance starts, but he's like the guy who's like teaching him everything. I don't think he's ever torn, but we'll get into that. But I mean, even before Peter is a part of the equation, when mm-hmm. I started to get the feeling that Benedict Cumberbatch might be gay, when it's literally just the triangle between the three of them, where he is getting jealous of Kirsten Dunst because she is taking away this private space of his and his brothers. And uh, now he no longer has his brother in the way that he used to. Yes, I agree. Which, yeah. And I just think, like, Campion is, seems very interested in, in, like, how those secret personal relationships kind of get fucked up by, like, new additions to their life. I didn't say that well. Anyway. Well, yeah, but I think, I don't know, like, all the biographical stuff that I've been reading actually has, like, a lot of that. Because I think her younger brother actually has, like, a pretty big age gap between her and her brother. And by the time, like, the brother came along, um, apparently her father basically, like, forgot his daughters existed and, like, devoted all of his attention to the son and was basically like, this is my child. And so, you know, like... Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not not there, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, Anyway. (laughs) You want to talk about the demon twink? I love the demon twink. I what I liked about him is that he was so hard to understand. Like I couldn't ever actually pin down who he was. And so I until But that's the point, right? Right, right. Like, oh no, of course. That's what I'm saying. Is like yeah. that's like what was so great about his performance is that like it is so he's so enigmatic that like it it was never clear really until the end of the movie, I think, where his allegiances lie. And that's just the magic of Cody Smith McPhee's performance, which Jane Campion said was kind of a struggle to find the actor to actually play that role. Oh, um, I, I can believe it. They, she watched like, at, 
her original idea was just like, oh, we're going to find somebody great who's new and has never done anything and they're just going to be perfect. And then she watched hundreds of videos of people reading dialogue, at which point she said, the audition, auditioning is a very informative process in that it tells you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, how bad all, like how bad so many actors are. And then you start to think like, wait, is what I gave them bad? Maybe I need to give them a different thing to perform. And then it just stays bad. And you know that you just still haven't found the right person. You know, it's very funny because I totally thought that I knew where I had seen this guy before. And I absolutely do not. Like He's the an entire- Australian actor. Yes. I definitely saw him in Dolomite is my name. And I remember like thinking like that guy has like a role with basically like two lines and he pops off the screen in some way. Oh, I know him from X-Men. You would. But I think uh, basically I thought that I had remembered him from like a Yorgos Lanthimos movie or something. He gives that energy. Yeah, exactly. That sort of like deadpan, like uh, emotions at like a 5% level. And so I kept thinking the whole time, it's too bad. Like I've seen him in like a lot of these other incredible movies that apparently I haven't. But like, I just like kept getting the sense that I had watched great evil performances from him. And I was like disappointed watching this movie that he wasn't given anything to do. And then fucking lo and behold, I was completely wrong. And it was a fucking delight. Oh my God. Yeah. He comes out of nowhere because the whole first half of the movie, he's not really like that big of an entity. Like he certainly is there, but he goes off to school and it doesn't focus on him for a while. And so when he does come back, it's kind of like, wait, how does he fit in? What's going on now? Yeah, I think he's introduced as someone who is really soft. You know, he's seen making these paper flowers. And then when... When Phil is bullying him at that dinner. Yeah, when um, Phil takes one of the flowers and, like, sets it on fire, just, like... To light his cigarette? Yes. And also to see what, like, the reaction would be. You see his mother crying. And so it was just, like, really... I think you just, like, basically only see him as, like, a victim. And then, and he sort of has, like, a little, like, blankness in his eyes. And I think what's really great about the power of the dog is that you realize later on that, like, he has a performance of guilelessness the entire time. And it's just, like, another way of, like, being secret. And even though... Uh, Phil thinks that he can completely see through Peter because, you know, it's... Because he thinks, he thinks that, like, that he sees a likeness of, be- of a, a likeness of hiding. Or like an inability to hide. Or like a... Like, he, I, I, my guess would be that, like, Phil thinks that, like, Peter doesn't know that, like, he's supposed to hide himself, Right. And I think that, like, what's really great about it is that Peter flips the script by basically being like, actually, I was also performing all along. And you are so convinced that there is only one way to hide that, like, you completely missed my actual performance. Right. And that 
it's not that I'm hiding being gay. It's that I'm hiding being a sociopath. Yes. Which is delicious. <laughs> yes. Well, and we get like hints of that as viewers, like because we get many of, hints. Yeah, because of when he's like dissecting the rabbit after he had just like shown the rabbit to his drunk mother and they were playing with it. And it just shows so quickly, like, oh, this is a guy who will murder animals. Like Well, I mean, he's starting to be like a sturgeon. But I think like what's also really great about that particular character detail is that he's just really good at like hiding his sociopathy or hiding basically like I, I, I think he gives like a really great sense of like you know what you're looking at. You know, like with Phil everything there's only outside versus inside and there's just like a binary there and i think what's so much more sophisticated about peter's secrecy is that like it's his faux vulnerability yes and i feel like that's like a kind of character like you almost never see um and it just like rang really true to me um i think also maybe like especially as like a woman this is, like, bad to admit, um, so I know you're going to, like, put this in the pod. But I feel like there's, like, sometimes, like, ways where I will, like, protect, like, if I don't want to do a thing, I will tell my husband, like, I don't know how to do it, and then he'll do it, like, out of aggravation. And because he is the way that he is, he's always, like, you know, if you were, like, a real feminist, like, you will learn how to do this, like, dumb task. And I'm just, like, no, I don't know how to do it, and then he'll do it. And I feel like... And they just say to him, well, if you were a real feminist, then you would do it without saying what you just said. That's usually what I say. (laughs) Sending all this audio directly to Dan. (laughs) He knows. (laughs) But yeah, uh, I think you just also never really see men use that like particular feminine like, oh, like I'm so helpless. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and I think like, that's also really great like that felt really like refreshing and it also just like seemed to make so much sense for this like particular historical period where obviously you get the sense that like any of those cow hands you know if i feel like if like peter gave them like a look that like lingered a little bit too long for example like they would probably they might kill him like that's like the kind of like ultra macho like ultra aggro world that phil has has like fostered uh as like the boss of the ranch and so yeah i i that like faux vulnerability is just like a really great way to hide and be like oh like am i supposed to like pretend like i'm gay like oh i had no idea well and then also because phil's cultivated this like crew of hot bros he just gets to look at them without them realizing what's going on Another really beautiful shot that I loved when all of the cow hands go to the river and just like have like a really great time bathing in the nude. And a bunch of cowboys are just like lying by the river naked and they just have like their hats like over their genitals. Really beautiful. Sign me up. And then there was, like, another scene where you have, like, a horse that's sort of, like, knee-deep in the water. And there's, like, a cowboy, like, lying on, like, full, like, laid out, like, on the horse's back. Just, like, a lot of really beautiful scenes. And I kept, and I was, like, thinking to myself, 
if I saw like that particular composition in like a store or something like I would buy that poster or I would buy that painting or whatever. It was just like a really beautifully imaginative shot. And See, whereas if I saw that poster, I would think, oh, that belongs in like a gay man's home, a, a gay man in his 60s home. <laughs> well, I, I guess so I what I'm saying is I bought it for Rooney. <laughs> uh, this movie is so great. I think like one thing I also ended up really loving about this movie is that it seemed to me like the way that it was going as you realize that Phil seems to really have an affection for Peter is that I was left thinking like is he going to try to romance Peter or when they go on that like two per two men horse ride together is he going to kill peter right like because this is like right after peter has discovered the gay porn and he's like hey let's go on like a horse ride together even though you don't know how to ride a horse oh see for me it just automatically my brain went to like he wants to get his dick wet yeah, but like because well, and I see I didn't I like I understand what you're saying, but like for me, the way that I read it is much more like he wanted to like get the read on Peter as to if he actually is on the down low or not, um, or if he's just like this creepy peculiar kid who like if he did try to like hit on him, it wouldn't go down. But then like we get maybe the hottest scene in the movie, which is when Peter rolls a cigarette and holds it up to Phil's lips. And, oh, my God, I just wanted a cigarette in that moment. (laughs) You have probably every other gay man and some straight woman in that audience. Um, I think basically what I was really, like, for me, I like, so much of the tension came from whether Phil was going to want to be with, try to be with Peter, or whether he was going to kill Peter. And I think the movie does set up a lot to that, like to the point where, like after their big night together, when Peter like plays his hand and says like, you know, basically like, I know about you. Uh, there are these like excruciatingly drawn out scenes, these wonderfully excruciating scenes where uh, basically you don't see Peter and you only see Phil, and you have people wondering, like, where's Phil? Where's Peter? And then you basically see a coffin, you know? Like, I do think that, like, there is sort of, like, a way that the mystery is drawn out. I think that you are supposed to think that, like, Phil might kill Peter at some point. This is weird, because I feel like you I never got disagree. that. I never got that at all. Okay. I, from the moment I knew that, like, he was gay and that he, like, was trying to figure out if Peter was gay, I never perceived that, like, he was a threat to Peter. It was more that he, w- I always perceived it as, like, he was constantly on the defensive trying to determine if Peter was going to out him, if Peter was going to destroy him, which and is interesting. And a good way of getting Peter to never out him is by killing him. Right, but, like, I I think, I, I, I just, like, literally have no... That never crossed my mind. Okay. And never came through in the performance, and like for me at least. Okay. 
I think our vastly different readings are really interesting. You thought that, like, the man who, like, beats a horse for literally no reason other than, like, being really mad that, like, his brother, like, somebody who is, like, not him, is, like, a guy who is sympathetic. Yeah. (laughs) I was actually going to... He's a victim of his own circumstances. I was actually going to say, like, this man is probably, like, your dream man. He's, like, mean and hot. And really actually sweet when you're alone. And I mean, I guess I would like to date a murderer, so. That tracks with everything I know about you. Yeah. Um, But I just think, like, it's such a credit to Cody's performance that, like, it was never clear wherever it was until that, like, final scene. But I just, like, loved their is this romance, is this not uh, type of thing. I don't know. I love that he kills him through poison. Like, so much about this movie is about secrecy and sort of like the power of secrecy and how, like, basically, like, how you have to sort of hide who you are from the world in order to gain power. And, you know, we already talked about how Peter has a much more sophisticated system of secrecy than phil does and i love that like you know if phil ever like phil's way of like killing you would basically be like knocking you out with like a stick or like taking one of those logs and like hitting you or like shooting you with a gun right like it would be very direct it would be very quote-unquote manly and i love how utterly like detached and utterly like sneaky uh this whole murder was i think that like if it was like a different uh much more a women's game yes but that's also what was like great because uh phil is so misogynistic that he never sees it coming No, he doesn't. And that is part of the, like, beautiful tragedy of Phil. What do you think that we're supposed to think about Peter? Because you call him a sociopath, but I actually was sort of moved by his willingness to murder I think that... Because he did it for his mommy. Right, but I think that both things can be true. I think that he can be a sociopath who is willing to murder for the benefit of a loved one but also that like he has loved ones and so like he is willing to do anything for his mother because he wants her to be happy and if that is killing off this guy then that's what he has to do and he just has to do it just like the way that he has to kill that rabbit to see what's inside of it he like there's just this uh I think that he's terrifying, but I also think that he is a sweet, sweet boy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's ultimately what the movie wants you to think. Especially with that smirk right at the end. And now for Daniel's favorite segment, rankings. Woohoo, our last rankings <laughs> of the season. Let's see how it all shakes out. This is going to be a hard one. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, do you want to go first this time? 
I'll be happy to. Uh, just to run through the movies that we have to rank, they are The Piano, Bright Star, Sweetie, An Angel at My Table, Holy Smoke, In the Cut, Top of the Lake Seasons 1 and 2, The Portrait of a Lady, and The Power of the Dog. I have no recollection of what my rankings were even in the previous episode, so this is going to be lit. Can't wait. So this is so tough, but I think I'm going to put Power of the Dog at the top. Okay. Honestly, defensible. And then Holy Smoke. (laughs) Followed by the piano, of course. And then Bright Star, Top of the Lake Season 1, Portrait of a Lady, Sweetie, an angel at my table, in the cut, and all the way at the bottom, top of the lake season two. Wow. Okay. These are my rankings for today and probably today only. Uh, Number one, the piano. Of course. Number two, the power of the dog. Mm. Uh, I think number three, holy smoke, and then top of the lake season one, bright star, Oh, boy. Um, mm-hmm. Probably Portrait of a Lady, Sweetie, An Angel at My Table, Top of the Lake Season 2. I totally forgot in the cut, but put that in the middle somewhere. Love the chaos of these rankings. Uh, yes. And also, if you like some inter-campion action, I published a piece at the end of December um, that looks at the power of the dog through in the cut and sort of the themes that carry over from that earlier film to this one so if you'd like uh please go check it out and then don't at me i really loved it it was a great piece and we'll include a link in the show notes all right well that's about it for this episode and this season of all about campion we had such a great time exploring jane campion's works with you and i guess daniel And we wanted to thank all the wonderful listeners who joined us. We really appreciate you. It may be the end of our season, but don't worry. We're not finished just yet. Next week, we'll be back with an All About Almodovar reprise uh, with June Thomas, who will be joining us again to cover Pedro's new work, Parallel Mothers. Can't wait. As always, you can reach us at allaboutfilmpod at gmail.com or find us both on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and keep an eye on your feeds to see where we end up going for season three out later this year. Mm